In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As you can imagine, um, I, well, okay, maybe, maybe you haven't taken the time to imagine, but if you, if you attend regularly here and you've received a copy of the discipleship plan, you probably have seen that it's, it's, it's robust, it's hopeful, it's uh, maybe bigger than we could do at this point, but the point was never to do it all at once uh, in, in that sense anyway. And, and so behind that, as I think I've mentioned before from this uh, pulpit, was a request from the bishop that um, we were able to, to fulfill by having those folks work on the discipleship plan. And, and uh, at last vestry meeting, we I got to see the results of the follow-up survey to see the kinds of things people are saying they want to get involved with and the kinds of things people would like to see uh, happen here at the parish. And, and that's part of a move, something that's happening right now in our parish as we come up in just a few weeks to be celebrating our sixth uh, anniversary, uh, launched first Sunday of Advent here in this very sanctuary uh, in December of 2012, and so as we come up to that sixth anniversary, that discipleship plan, which is forward-looking, is also coupled with some ongoing discussions between uh, the vestry and myself and the bishop, and, and really looking at the future uh, of this parish, just where have we come from, where are we going, understanding the bishop's vision for parishes and his diocese, even though he's been Bishop now for over three and a half years. We're you know, still all getting to know each other in one sense. And, and so uh, the other night, uh, our senior warden, Timothy, uh, came over to just talk with me about uh, a meeting that our vestry was able to have with the bishop. And uh, we were also uh, you know, just, just kind of talking again about some general things and, and uh, the, the element of like, okay, so we're a parish that if, if everyone showed up and about three minutes before the service tonight, it looked like no one was going to show up and then boom, here we are. And so, but if everyone showed up to this parish, we'd have close, like that, that are regular attenders, we'd have 90, about 90 people in the service. And so we're a parish of about 90 people. That's, that's not visitors, that's people who I can, can look at, name, and know that they identify this church as their primary church home. And and so when I was at the clergy retreat, so we're a parish of 90, thinking about this discipleship plan, thinking about our future. And when I was at the clergy retreat a couple weeks ago, I, I found out that we're actually about the same size as two other uh, longstanding parishes in our diocese. I mean, we're a longstanding one, but they, they were Episcopal churches before, you know, prior to the Anglican Church in North America being founded. And, and they're about the same size. And then I heard, I didn't hear exactly, I didn't hear their exact number of their budget, but I heard what a church that size's budget would normally be. And I thought, oh, yeah, I guess having some students and recent graduates in our parish changes things a little bit. And, uh, but you know, from a financial standpoint, and, and, and this is not a, a criticism, obviously, but the reality is uh, students, recent graduates, young families still establishing themselves in, in a place that's very expensive to live in anyway. And so it was a bit sobering because I, you know, to be honest, like, wow, we are just, no wonder those churches have a full-time priest, and we don't, right? We just don't have the same kind of budget as them. And so, Timothy and I were talking the other night, and I said, well, you know, the bishop was encouraging us, I think, to, to do more teaching about giving, and I said to him, well, I will preach as often about giving as the lectionary lets me, and I won't even necessarily pray about giving just because the lectionary lets me. 
But tonight I'm preaching about giving because the lectionary lets me, and I think there's a good word for us to hear tonight. And the reality for this parish is um, we need to, to, to grow financially in order to ever think about what it might look like um, to have a full-time rector. And the reason we should aspire to that is not my discontent, because I'm not, but the reality is, is I, there's mostly a lot of things I don't do and a few things I do, and we're, we're going to become a parish where there just needs to be someone who can do more. And as you know, my inability to do is literally a time issue, not a, not a desire issue or something like that. So tonight we are presented with this passage in Mark 12. Um, it starts with a warning to the scribes. Jesus had just warned the Pharisees uh, prior to this in Mark, not immediately prior, but he's already addressed the Pharisees. So now Jesus turns his attention to the scribes and then he uh, tells uh, the story or, or recounts for us about this widow and her giving. And so we, we begin by hearing Jesus does what he does on occasion, which is to critique people groups, right? And not without reason. I mean, Jesus isn't one just to go around and ruffle feathers for the sake of ruffled feathers, but instead he identifies issues in these people groups. And again, it's important to keep in mind that this isn't about Christians versus non-Christians or Christians versus the Jewish uh, the Jews or anything like that. This is, this is Jesus singling out of the people group who are the scribes, right? And he says to them, beware. He says to the people, listen, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, which is in fact what they wore. So, you know, most of us wear what we like. So the, the scribes literally wore long robes. So they walk around and they like to do that. They like greetings in the marketplaces. They're a respectable group of people, recognized by their long robe of who they are, right? It's, it's, if I go out in public in my collar, it doesn't take long for someone just to walk by me and say, oh, hello, Father, right? Even if I don't know him, it immediately betrays, you know, who I am. I don't normally walk around in my doctoral gown, though that would probably serve a similar purpose, uh, but that's a little more unwieldy to walk around in, much less drive somewhere in it. So um, they, like, they like these greetings in the marketplace. Oh, you know, hello, scribe. Oh, hello, scribe, right? And they have the best seats in the synagogues because, again, they're the scribes. So the best seats are going to be reserved for them. And these seats actually were just in front, right, uh, of, of the symbolism of the ark. It's, you know, in a sense, they got the best seats um, in, in relationship to God's presence, if you will, in the synagogue. Um, and so they have the best seats in the synagogues. And, of course, if you're going to invite them over, you're never going to put, right, the scribe at a bad seat in the house, at the table, or... In our potluck terms, you're never going to put the scribes over in the far corner with perhaps some kids. Instead, you're going to put them closer to the table at the serving line, right? And so these are the, this is just who they are, like they're scribes. And because of this, they wear a distinctive dress, which they get recognized by, uh, preferential seating in a couple of different places, the synagogues and at feasts. And the, Jesus is not saying these things are bad in and of themselves. He's saying, but it's, it's the response of the scribes to these honorific actions. It's about their conduct, right? So Jesus isn't saying, don't be a scribe. It's bad to be a learned person who holds a particular office in the religion, right? Like, because then this would be a sermon about me mostly, and so, and Father Steve, and so. But it's instead, do not conduct yourselves like the scribes. That's his point, right? Because what do they do in light of these honorific opportunities they're given? Well, verse 40, they devour widows' houses, 
Now, scholars or commentators aren't exactly sure what this might mean, but it could mean that the scribes who are supposedly caring for these widows, right, um, aren't caring for them well, or they're kind of the source of their credit, and they collect on that credit, perhaps, and so they devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, make long prayers, <laughs> right? As just as a pretense, just on principle, like, oh, let's pray. Like eight minutes later, you're like, my food is cold. This was a blessing on dinner. Let's get at it, right? So, so under a pretense, they make long prayers, right? They're putting on a show in front of others, right? And so they will receive the greater condemnation. I mean, Jesus isn't pulling any punches. They will be condemned, and it will be the greater condemnation, right? And again, not talking about the class of scribes as a class, but talking about the ones who conduct themselves in a way that's, that's inconsistent with who they are and certainly what they should be doing in relationship to God. And what that might be was summed up by one commentator I read this week that said, they made material profit out of spiritual influence. They made material profit out of spiritual influence. And I'm working hard here not to go off into 21st century preachers on TV and things like that. So, you know, but we see that in our own day, do we not? People making material profit out of spiritual influence. Well, this is what the scribes were doing. Don't be like them, right? That's the first thing we could say tonight. Jesus says, don't be like those people. So then he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money in the offering box, Marx tells us. Now, this offering box is probably a reference to 13 trumpet-shaped donation chests that are in the temple precinct. And they're made of copper, right? So in the t this would be like us, like forget the plates, put up 13 horn-shaped, you know, offering plates made of copper and put them right in the narthex, right? And so that's the kind of equivalent that these offering boxes, right? He sits down next to them and the rich people put in large sums. And because money back then was all coins, think about the sound it's going to make. Right? Think about the sound it's going to make. I remember as a kid, back in the good old days when you went into banks most of the time, you know, and because at least you got a sucker by doing that with your parents. And um, I remember, like, you know, my dad would, um, so my dad worked at a paper mill. He drank, most of the coffee my dad has ever drank in his life came out of a vending machine just to offend your sensibilities, right? So my dad would buy coffee out of a vending machine, right? And he did that for 40 years probably, and he would come home and he'd put the change in a jar, right? And some, my dad always had change in his pocket when we went somewhere, right? Because not everyone charged everything back then. But eventually that jar, which was probably like an old peanut butter jar, would get filled. And my dad would be like, okay, let's take it to the bank. And that counting machine was magical at the bank, right? Because you could barely see it over the teller's window, but there it was. And it had this flute-like thing to it so that it would catch the money. And, you know, they poured it in there, and it counted the money. Like, how does it know a dime from a nickel? Like, my little kid mind, uh, and maybe adult mind still can't figure out. You know, it sorts the money by size and everything, and it, and it was loud. That's what I remember, as it was churning that money, and it was loud. That's what Jesus is hearing as he sits across from this offering place. He's hearing that money. They're making noise, and, and maybe the rich people are doing it on purpose. Like, let, let's, let's cash these, you know, dollar coins in for something smaller, you know, to make more noise or something like that, right? So this is a loud thing that happens, and you know that a rich person has walked up and is throwing their money in it because it's going to be especially loud. 
But then this poor widow. Now remember, he's already talked about widows' houses, so now he's telling us a story about a widow. Right? The way in which the scribes offended against widows, right? the way they devoured these widows' homes, a widow came, the text tells us, and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, two coins. Think about that, just throwing that into the same receptacle. It's going to make a small noise. I thought about bringing Nathaniel's euphonium in here just to throw some change in it, and then I realized it's probably not good for it. It's the only thing I could think of that would make noise. But, but think about it. You throw in two coins, and, and the fact that she threw in two, commentators think it's, the two is significant because it probably means she kind of put in everything she had. Like she didn't even keep one back for herself. She put in two, but it's not going to make barely any noise. No one's going to turn their head to hear a couple of copper coins, right, go down and do a little copper flute. It's not going to make much noise at all. And so he calls the disciples to him, and he wants to tell them something. And he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And I'm, and I'm sure the disciples were sitting there going, yeah, that's, that's actually just not true. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, they're, they're, getting, they're used to Jesus maybe at this point, but still, like, um, did, like, and I mean, even while he's saying this, maybe more rich people are just putting the money in there. It's still making a bunch of noise. You know what I mean? And so, so like he says this to them, and then he says, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, widows in this day and age had no inheritance rights. No inheritance rights. So they had to rely on their children or male relatives for survival. Just think about our reading from Ruth tonight right? Like if Boaz had not redeemed, then, right, then Ruth is going to be in trouble. Like her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, are going to be living in poverty. But Boaz takes Ruth and she becomes his wife, right? He provides for her. He does what he needs to do as the next person can relate. Well, actually, he wasn't the next. He, had to, he, he wasn't the next, but other can passed up the opportunity to do the very thing that Boaz did, which was to marry Ruth and provide for her, right? So we get a sense from Ruth of how desperate things can be, you know, go follow the men in the field, gather up what they miss, right? And Boaz tells his men, let some fall on purpose so that she has something to gather. But imagine this today, she, out of her poverty, she put in everything she had. What? What are you doing? That's ridiculous, why would you ever give it away? What about your needs? What are you going to do about tomorrow? You can't presume anyone's going to be nice enough to you to give you something between now and the next time you need a meal. Christina had a beautiful experience with a woman in the park that she's been slowly making progress with getting to know her and, the, and this woman who looks homeless and appears homeless and is in the park frequently enough to suggest she's homeless loves the kids, you know, that Christina takes into the park. And so they've been a good bridge to strike up conversation. And, and she took one of our homeless packets to give to this woman. And the woman said, oh, I don't need that. I have everything I need. But I know someone who might. And Christina's like, how could you have, every, you know, how could you have everything you need? She didn't say that out loud. But she's thinking to herself, wow. Wow. You know, just what a different perspective she has of her things. And I mean, to be blunt, 
my finance guy who is a Christian would probably say, yeah, Greg, don't do this. <laughs> like, think about the future, right? Think about your retirement. Think about if you get incapacitated and you can't continue to work. So we, we live in a culture that kind of tells us this is crazy. You don't give away everything you have, right? All she had to live on. The text doesn't say she kept anything back. And again, she throws these two coins in there. It barely makes a sound. I'm sure no one even paid any attention to it. Probably couldn't even hear her two coins because of all the rattling going on from the 12 other collection plates or however we want to think, trumpet-shaped donation boxes. <laughs> Maybe Adam could make us some of those. And uh, the metal worker, we'll get him into metal work. So, but I mean, the point is, is she gave. And she gave all that she had. Now again, it would be, it would be foolish of me to, to, to have a sermon that says, give all you have. Both because I would be telling you to do something that's probably just not realistic, and second of all, it's, it would be irresponsible of me to actually tell you that. But what I do want to encourage us is to start thinking about is that we, we all, we, we were in this together. We are a parish. And so if you're visiting, welcome. We're glad you're here. And, uh, but for those who, this is your home, Right? Then, then we are in community with one another. This is our family. This is our church family. And so we need to start thinking about the way that we want to invite other people into our family. Right? For all the jokes I make about that I live you know, 2,500 miles away from my family and it's almost far enough, right? for all the jokes I make about that, I miss the kind of chaos that I grew up with, say, at my grandmother's house at Christmas right? That all of us were in this space making, oh, just crazy noise, right? Just, just being the Adams, the Peters, the McCormicks, right? This was my maternal grandmother, just being who we were as family together. And so let's not even wonder about the widow's, you know, means. Let's not even think about maybe what's motivating her to give, other than the fact that I imagine it's just simply she gave because she's expected to give, right? That the law expected Yahweh to be honored in this way. So what does she give? Well, she gives it all. And so as we think about the way that we're in community with one another, that the way we live together, that the way this parish doesn't just end at these four walls or however you want to count them, that there's some untold number of people in La Mirada and Whittier and La Habra and Brayer and maybe further afield that this could be their church home. And not because they're simply leaving another church to come here because they think a guy wearing a green chasuble every now and then is really cool, but, but because like, they've, just, they, they, they've come to know who Jesus is and they're excited about him and they want to follow him and we provide a place for them to be able to, to do that in a way that, that they feel called to become a part of it. And so it's, it's not just about us, it's about all the future us's. Right? I, I tell people all the time, like, why did I plant a church in La Mirada? One, so I could invite my neighbors to a church that wasn't 22 miles away. And two, because if my kids live in La Mirada, I want them to have a church to go to that's Anglican. And that says something about my convinced Anglicanism there. But, but the point is, is that's why we exist. But it's bigger than that. that. Those would be really selfish reasons. But again, it's the fact that we exist because we believe that we have something to offer to this community and to the world. We believe, and, and it's Jesus Christ, but I mean, we believe that the way in which we present Jesus Christ is good for people and we want to invite them in. But to be honest with you, it is going to take more than we have. And I'm being blunt here to say it's going to take more money right? It is just simply going to take more money. 
I am now 47 years old. I have no problem saying that. And in many ways, I feel better than I ever have. I, my energy is still up, but I'm realizing I can't keep this up forever. And then there's the question of, should I even keep this up forever? But at this point, what's the plan? What's the future? I mean, yes, why full-time? Because full-time will allow someone to be here to minister to us and to have the time to be out in the community meeting people in ways that I simply can't do. I work at a Christian institution. I meet lots of great people. Most of them know Jesus. Some of them love him. Right? And my job is to make the ones that don't love him more. That's part of my job. But I don't know a lot of non-Christians. Right? I'm not out there talking to people as a priest or just as a person. I don't have time to put my collar on and go somewhere public to be seen in public in order simply to offer pastoral solace to people who may need it. And so as we think about our future, let's think about that discipleship plan, and there's elements in that that are going to take money. But let's think even bigger than that and think about where are we going to be in six more years from now? Who will be the rector of this parish? Do you want 53-year-old Greg? Like, I don't know if 53-year-old Greg wants that for himself, but I don't know if you deserve 53-year-old Greg. I mean, who knows? I'm excited about the thought that if we, if we could be more faithful givers, if we, and I'm not, I don't know what you give. I am blissfully ignorant of who gives and what anyone gives in this parish. I don't know. I make a point of not knowing what anyone gives in this parish or whether they give or not. So again, if, 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 if you're saying, I'm doing all I can, then, then still listen and still hear me out and still ask God if you really are. But for those who maybe aren't, like, it is going to take some financial, some, some more significant finances, finances for us to be able to move forward in the ways that I think both would be honoring to God and really secure our future. And so we are given the opportunity tonight not just to talk about money, but because we're given the example of this widow who knew what to do with her money. I call my financial planner before I make big decisions. I will be transparent with you. I, I would like to retire someday. Some people want to die in the classroom. I want to walk out of it, turn the lights off, and say goodbye. <laughs> and die, hopefully, in Virginia somewhere. Right? That's what I want to do. But the point is, is like everyone has a different idea, but I, I, I talk to my financial planner. I make decisions of how I'm going to use my money. I am tight with my money. My kids know it. Right? Even in moments when I don't have to be, I am on principle. You know, could I do better? Sure. Could we all do better? Absolutely. So again, this isn't about guilting you into doing something that you may not be doing. It's not to be guilting you into those who do to do more, but it's to say, look at the example of this widow and what can we learn from her? Because our reading from Hebrews tonight tells us something interesting and beautiful. That what we get to touch, that what we get to experience as Christians on this side of Christ is real. And it's so much more real than what prefigured it in the Old Testament, which was really real, right? Burning trees, clouds, lightning, thunder. But somehow, what we experience is more real. And let me just say that as we try to emulate this widow, as we try to think about the ways in which God can move us individually and collectively into greater giving so that the future of this church will be different 
than what it might be with just me up here. And believe me, I am fine being put out of business. I am fine being told that we need a full-time rector. That is my prayer, in fact. Because this is about my family as well, and it's about my future as well, and I'm excited about what a full-time person could do, or at least a properly bivocational person could do. Right? Not someone who works 60 hours a week and then thinks about the church, right? Or has to also turn his attention to the church. And so as we emulate this widow and we think about how real these things are, I hope we get excited about that. So again, let me conclude by saying, again, this isn't about the money per se. Right? This isn't about guilting you into doing something you're either not doing or doing more of something you're already doing, but it's simply to, again, put before us the example of this widow. And those two copper coins made a difference. But so does a lot of coins falling into those offering plates. And we need to not act like that's not true. And so let us put ourselves in the hands of God, asking him to guide and direct us as a parish into the future, us as individuals and our own giving, but us as a collective body wanting to get beyond these walls, wanting to support our diocese, wanting to support our province with our finances, not just with our good prayers, but with our finances. Let us, let us start with the example of this widow, and look to ourselves and see what God is telling us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.